scope of the last year. Going through the book of Revelation together, you recall we have been able to view our current redemptive history, what's taking place right now and that God is at work in human history, and our role in God's work in human history and what He's doing with the church as we're facing uh, the beast, the false prophet, and Babylon as we're considering our lives lived in time now. And then the question that then comes in that difficult book, that difficult landscape is, how then shall we live? How will we have power to live in this difficult age that is passing away? And then for a journey, we went to the law, right? Ten Commandments to inquire, how then shall we live? If we come out of the book of Revelation and we see, indeed, we need God's wisdom in an age that is passing away, we need God's wisdom as to how we shall then live in a difficult age. The Ten Commandments open up to us this beautiful pathway of freedom of how we shall then live before the face of God. Yet it is also a reminder that we will never achieve the Ten Commandments. Therefore, we don't strike up a new conversation with the Ten Commandments in order to impose new forms of legalism on ourselves. But we recognize God must grant to us in Jesus Christ the power to obey. But yet we see a wonderful pathway, a directive, a compass that can point the direction. It just can't get us there. And so we appreciate the law for what it is and moving us to the gospel that empowers. And we find in that beautiful power by the person of the Holy Spirit performing that within us by grace. And now we're coming to the book of Hebrews And it is building on that same conversation. It's saturated in that you live in the last days. That's just like Revelation. And the community there is asking, how then shall we live? And he's saying the same thing to them. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back. But it looks like it's sufficient Don't give way to that impulse of whatever is seen, handled, touched, and tasted is real. What I cannot see, taste, handle, and touch must not be real. Don't give in to that impulse because, yes, it looks like it's sufficient, the ceremony, the pomp, the circumstance. It looks like it's doing something, but it can never take away your sin. Don't go back. So it's this contrast between a people caught in this pressure tank to go back to the old covenant where they sense this, I can touch it, I can taste it, I can see it, I can smell it, I can go back to it. And a pushing forward, the new covenant is upon you, don't go back to the old. Why not? It cannot ever take away your sin. That's why. So then we have a class right at the same time to explore this idea of what is this distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant? What is a covenant? And why does the Bible talk about covenant so much? So we're introducing covenant theology to pair with our journey in the book of Hebrews. If you're available, please join with us in our exploration of why the Bible makes so much of covenants and what that then means for you as we join in the community to the Hebrews.
This morning for my introduction with you, that's what it's going to be, is an introduction into the book of Hebrews, and I'm kind of going to explore it with you, kind of quite straightforward, these investigative journalism techniques or any essay or any paper that you've ever written is answering these basic questions, who, what, where, when, why, and the one H is how, great, we're all together then, we know where we're going. Okay, great. So that's just, I thought, you know, let's just walk through the basic questions. If, if we were students, we were being pushed to explore this book together, in which we are students of the Word of the Lord this morning, then let's just take what we know would be upon us as a responsibility, and that is if we're to approach this book with any sense of competency, which we will do, we must be able to answer these basic points of exploration. So let's do that step one. We'll answer the who, what, where, when, why, and the how of the book of Hebrews as an introduction into the book. The first one then right away that comes to us as learners as we're about to join in the conversation of the apostle to this community is the first of our five W's and one H is who is the author and audience of the book of Hebrews? Who is it? So right? So the first one, the who. Who as not in the band, as in the who of the investigative question. Who is the author and audience of Hebrews? Well, I would answer it this way. First, let's eliminate who we know it is not. Because some of the question is, well, is it, who would you say it might be? Well, it must be Paul, the apostle of the New Testament. It must be Paul, right? Because we don't know the author, he didn't sign his name to the letter. So then we're kind of asking, who is it? Well, let's first answer who it is not. Why can't it be the Apostle Paul? With some measure of certainty as we grow in exploring the book, why not Paul? Well, look with me, kind of our most easily accessible point of acknowledgement of why it is not Paul. Let's first eliminate him, and then we'll explore who we might think it is chapter 2. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to be doing a bit of page flipping this morning just because, again, we want to kind of overview the book, get our feet underneath us, and then join in the journey with the community and the author for the next several weeks. So let's just kind of get a feel for the landscape. Chapter 2, why it cannot be Paul. Look with me in verse 1, and you'll acknowledge this right away. Therefore, as he writes to the church, We must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. We'll get into that language there, but what he's referring to is in the Ten Commandments. Verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here's the key of why we know it must not be a Paul uh, or Pauline authorship. It is right there. It was declared at first by the Lord. Yes, we get it. The gospel is declared. The word of the Lord is declared by the Lord. Secondly, it was attested to us. Okay, so the writer is identifying. It's like me talking to you. We both shared this similar experience. I was with you, you were with me, how we heard about the gospel of the Lord. It was attested to all of us by those who heard. Do you see that's a third group? So the Lord had declared it, others had heard it from Him, and we together heard it together by those who heard it from the Lord. So why does that mean it cannot be Paul who then penned this letter? Because Paul had a first hand account 
of the gospel of the Lord. Do you remember that uh, road to Damascus event in Paul's life, Acts chapter 9, where certainly a bright light appeared to him, and then there was blindness upon the eyes, and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, my Lord? And then from there, in this first-hand account, his gospel was bore out, and then he began to preach and to teach about the kingdom of God. So Paul has a first-hand account, so he would be one whom the audience had heard it from. Someone who heard it from the Lord, not a secondhand account from Paul. So then the question is, if we say, okay, so far we're putting Paul, and that is my simplest way of point of access, who it must not be, is simply verse 3 there. And then if we move past that and we say, okay, then who possibly is it that wrote the letter to the Hebrews? Well, look with me over at uh, chapter 13. This gives us a little insight into who the author may be as investigative journalists this morning, I guess. Chapter 13, we're digging up the clues and looking for authorship. Who is this guy who wrote this magisterial letter about how the Old Covenant would never take away our sins? Verse 22 gives us a little bit of insight into verse 22 and 23, who this man might be who stands behind the letter. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Now, here's a little insight. With whom I shall see you if he comes soon. What does that indicate to us? Well, so far, it gives us a little door of access Do you remember who Timothy was paired with, who Timothy kind of rolled with as we speak? Who is it that is paired so closely with Timothy? Paul. So then we have this man attached to Timothy. He is, in other words, in Paul's what we call inner circle. There's some access. He knows Timothy. He is paired with Timothy. Timothy paired with Paul. He is a member of Paul's band of brothers, we could say. So there's an inner circle there with the author. He knows Paul. He knows Timothy. He is paired together with them. This gives us a little more insight towards an answer who this then may be. We know, one, he's a part of Paul's inner circle. But what else, what other clues can show us who this writer might be that we could join with him in a great journey and get his insights, get into his mind a little bit as we go through the book? Well, the other element is his scholarship is widely known. If we look at the book as we see all of it, um, do you remember last week I was reading, reading it for you, and did you notice as we were going through the reading, he would write about something theological, right? He would say that the, the old is passing away, the new is, is emerging, and then we look at Jesus, and then you remember that name Melchizedek, and he talks about this priest Melchizedek, and then he says, after all of this information, he then says, now, comma, The point of what I'm telling you is this. Now, how many times have I done that for you? Confused you thoroughly, and then at the end, after wearing you out, wearing myself out, I just think, okay, what I mean is, and you're like, finally, we went like this all the way to this. We could have just went, but he likes to go like this to get there. I do. It's just the way my mind works. I'm in good company, because as he writes, and he continues to write, and continue to write, and continue to write, he pauses and says, consequently, 
oh, good, so there is a reason why you're telling me this. There is a consequence. What we mean is, and he's doing that, therefore, and that is a well-developed argument. You all think, no, it's just pastors continue to speak forever with lots of run-on sentences and then strategically placed commas. But everyone acknowledges, who studies the book of Hebrews, acknowledges this man was formerly trained in rhetoric. He was a scholar, a first century scholar, a man who was well-trained. He he, he didn't kind of throw this thing together in a big, long, run-on sentence and hope that somebody could identify something he had said in there. It is formerly developed. So if we were to take, just for interest's sake, if we were to take a first century document of um, high-end education and training, and we were to take the argument that is trained in how you form an argument and how you write and how you overwhelm your audience with the force of your argumentation, we would take that kind of um, uh, example and we would lay it on the book of Hebrews and we'd identify them as working hand in hand. So we recognize he's a great Christian scholar of the first century with a huge understanding of the Old Testament. He sews in more Old Testament than we're going to be able to wrap our minds around. And he shows how all of it shows forth the beauty and glory of the supremacy of Jesus. Everything. As the children's stories say, every page whispers his name. And this is how the writer of Hebrews is going to form his argument for you. The old covenant is done away with. I'm telling you, I can point from any text anywhere to show you Jesus is its ultimate end. He is the ultimate meaning. Don't go in reverse. Go forward. This is how he's writing his argumentation for you, to follow it along. Wait a minute, you mean he didn't make a bunch of illogical connections? You mean it's logically laid out in scholarship? Yes, it is, absolutely. That gives us insight into who this man then may be. So he's a great speaker, and we recognize the type of letter. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Turn with me to Acts so we can see who then is this person that might fit the bill Acts 18.24, if you join with me in Acts 18.24, because we're answering the basic question, who then could this guy be if he is formally trained in scholarship? He is a good orator and talker, one who would deliver with excellence, a man who understands the Scriptures. Who could this be if it's not Paul? Then we would say perhaps it is a man named Apollos. Acts 18, verse 24. Notice the description that Luke makes of Apollos. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, explained to him the way of God more accurately. Doesn't that fit with we were taught? And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This fits the bill quite nicely to be perhaps it was then Apollos, 
If we put all things considered together, it could very well have been Apollos who wrote the letter to the Hebrews. Now, for my final give to you on the first question of who is the author, how about this one? What's the significance and why we don't know? In other words, what do we care? He didn't sign the document. What does that say? All I can think of is every time that comes to me when I think, wow, this is the only, well, again, I don't want to give away my next couple of points. Um, It is one of the most beautiful letters written in the New Testament. One of the best, most orchestrated that we have. It takes the Old Testament and uses it in a way that scholars continue to study how a writer can use the Old Testament in such a way with such power and force. This beautiful literature about the supremacy of Christ that we, God's people, long to read and hear. And yet we have no idea who He is. You know what that ought to strike us? This is how it strikes me. I hope it encourages you in humility. How many times do we do something and we need people to know we did it? I'm glad I did it, but I'll even be happier if that person somehow goes in there and knows I did it. And yet here we have this magisterial work and the heart of this individual truly is the content of the book. The supremacy goes to Christ. The glory and honor is due to Christ. You're living out that sense of John the Baptist by confession. He must increase, and I, the servant, must decrease. It's immediately, even authorship is applicable to the saints. This man did not stand and be like, I wrote that. I wrote that. Was that amazing? Did you see how I did that with Psalm 8? It's to the supremacy and the glory of Christ, a servant unknown, that our own lives in a microcosmic way would reflect that same life lived. All glory and honor due to Him. Might He increase and I decrease. So it is that he'll even draw that same language to Moses. Now you recognize Moses is the center of Jewish theology, right? I mean, the first five books of Moses is the heartbeat of the covenant. And guess how he speaks of Moses? A faithful servant, but that is it, a servant. So to himself, I'm not greater than my master. And we don't even know who he is. So that is a bit of what not knowing even instructs us in automatically. We can't answer the first question unto the writer's credit who he even was. Let it breathe a word to us of humility, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Who then is the audience in the second of our question one of who is authorship and audience? Who is the audience? Who are these individuals? We might pair with them in life situation as we did with Revelation. We might pair with the audience, identify them two ways, historically and situationally. Historically, who are, who is the audience of this letter? They are a group of Christians in small house churches. 
So in the first century, you recognize that's, they wouldn't gather. Like this would be a large gathering in the first century. It would be a large gathering of believers in one place like this. Perhaps it would be about this size would be like max capacity for a congregation of house church members where they're receiving this letter. And the only thing we can sense about the house churches, okay, so consider I'm going to argue for this letter being written to those Christians in like an urban environment of Rome. Okay, so that's kind of the destination. So think in the outskirts of the urban environment of Rome, these small little pockets of house churches that are connected through fellowship, but they're distinct in location. So they're spread throughout the city, and there's something going on with their uh, regional leadership. There's, there, there's some sort of relationship, stress, and strain going on with the elders who are overseeing like the regional uh, house churches, because remember at the end, he exhorts them to obey the leadership. Remember, guys, submit to the leadership. They love you, and they are caring for you. They are keeping watch for you as those who will give an account. So there's some sort of friction in between these local pocket house churches spread throughout the city and its regional oversight team or its regional leadership of elders. So the group historically is a small house church, and uh, they're receiving this letter. Situationally, then, who are they? What's going on there beyond the stress between leadership and congregant? What beyond that is taking place historically? The epistle will indicate to us that these Christians are Jewish Christians who are struggling under the pressure of persecution to go back under Judaism. Now, that's analogous to Revelation. If you remember in the seven letters at the very beginning, it was like a year and a half, two years ago, so I'm sure you remember, fresh on your mind, was where um, the, the Jews within Rome, right, they're getting the nod officially that they can continue operations and they're going to be all right. All right, you guys have your religious identity, and that's all right, you're going to be okay, you'll receive basic protections under the law. Now, The rub comes when the believers in Jesus, that is, Jewish Christians, those who have turned to Christ as the Messiah and received Him as their Lord and are following Him as the way of redemption. He and He alone is the Redeemer. Now that is not the same as Judaism. And they're not afforded the same privileges and protection as the machine that is Judaism. And those who belong to Judaism recognize them and they fight them. All kinds of friction breaks out in the Jewish districts over the content of the gospel. So then, if you're thinking, these people are a blight, I'm tired of this, let's get rid of them, we appeal then to the higher power to say, hey, guess what? This group over here is not with us. We get rights and protection, they're not with us. Where does that put you? In a place of no protection. What is your temptation? To go back under the place of protection. Okay, so over here, I can confess Christ and I can suffer the consequences. I could. That's an option. But having now felt the persecution and seen the trouble, there emerges yet another option. That is to go back. That's what's going on. And the writer is saying, consider Jesus. He didn't 
go back. He kept going for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. You too have a hope that is set before you. Endure the trial for the joy that is set before you. Don't go back. So they're sensing this. Let me turn you to a text that can give you a little insight into this. If you're in Hebrews, uh, if you're still in Acts, go back to Hebrews, and we're in Hebrews chapter 10. Look at chapter 10 as he encourages them about this difficult situation and going forward and how we know it's a sense of persecution to renounce their faith and go back to Judaism, receiving its protections and rights. Verse 32, he writes to them, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened. Okay, so he's pushing them, remember the past for your present and future power. Remember what happened, and we'll get into this in just a moment. But for now, verse 32, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He's driving them back to a very real situation historically for them. Verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. You see what's happening to them? Suffering, difficulty, since you knew you had for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Look in chapter 12, one page over, as he writes them yet again in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 12, on a very real and historical difficulty they're facing. Verse 3, he points them to Christ. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he drives them to consider Jesus. Now, go back to verse chapter 2 and look at Verse 1, what is the threat? What's going on here? How serious is it? Look as he writes to them in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. What's, why? What's the threat? What's the challenge? What's the concern on the pastor's heart? It is lest we drift away from it. There's danger of drifting away from the confession we have made. This is his burden as he writes to the people of Hebrews. What is his solution to the congregation? Encourage one another. Exhort one another. Let me apply in considering to our congregation something that this book and the concern of drifting away or, or kind of losing sight of running our race with endurance and kind of getting bogged down by other elements, consider as he also writes to a people, guess what is 
their situation. It's not monolithic. And neither is ours. In our local congregation, there are some, in other words, in their walk with Christ that are mature, tested through various trials and challenges in their life. There are some who are more on the scale of immature, who are learning through difficulty what it means to walk with Christ. And there are some who have yet to walk with Christ truly. That's what makes up the body. It's not like everyone has the same constitution. So they handle trial and difficulty the same way. It's not like every person is in the same place biblically or their heart in the same place in encouragement. It isn't monolithic. And we come in here sometimes and we get that sense about one another that we're all on the same page doing the same thing. Or we think everyone else is on the same page doing all the same stuff but me. And the writer, the pastor, as he writes the Hebrews, is not that at all. The exhortation is, there are some seriously within you, among you, who are in threat and danger of drifting away. And remember when you faced trials before? How all these things happened to you before? And how you responded by faith and with hope and with encouragement. Do you remember? That's what he's asking you. Do you remember when that happened before? And how you persevered? And how you encouraged others along the same pathway who were experiencing difficulty and discouragement, trial and tribulation, how you helped them? Remember? Why do they need our help? Because not everyone is in the same place. Not everyone's trial comes at the same moment. Not everyone's maturity is the same experience so what does that mean for me? If I attend this worship, if I attend this body right here, what does that mean for me? What does this instruct me in? That I need to be active in encouraging and bearing the burdens of other believers that I worship with. Because they might be, in fact, we know they are, going through difficulties. And you, some of you, having your, he says later, senses trained through hardship, need to be those who then come along the side of others and encourage them. Do you remember in the former days when you did that? Do it again. You have a need for endurance. How will we endure together? By encouraging and exhorting one another every single day. When was the last time you thought about another person within this congregation before you saw them this morning? You worship with these people. You catechize with them. You confess your faith publicly in front of them and they in front of you. When was the last time you encouraged them? Except when you asked them this morning. The writer is Encouraging you. Encourage one another every day. 
Because there are some within our own midst who are in fear of drifting away. Consider Jesus who endured. Endure with your brothers and endure with your sisters. Encourage every day. So that's who the audience is then. The second of our um, concerns is the epistle's content is the second of our number of our five W's. What is contained in Hebrews? What is contained in it? Look over at chapter 13, and this is what we're going to study. And this is exciting to me. I hope that it's exciting to you is um, chapter 13. You might not need to be as excited as I am, but I hope nonetheless you are excited about it. And that is in chapter 13, verse 22. If you see there, this is what the book actually is. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my, do you see there in the text, word of exhortation. Now, that is code language, word of exhortation. That's code language in the Bible for, guess what? A sermon. It's code language for a sermon. Bear with my word of exhortation to you. I'm exhorting you. So you're preaching to us? Yes. This, what we have recorded in Hebrews, is a manuscripted sermon. So it's going to be exciting. The only sermon, manuscripted in book form, that we have contained in the New Testament is right here in Hebrews. It's a sermon that was prepared to be preached or orally read in front of the house church members. And that's what he wrote for us, is a sermon. Hopefully I can learn from it how to put one together as he has so wonderfully done. And his great force and logic and his consequence for us, if we're to sit and we're to hear and we're not to take the Lord's name in vain in doing so, then consequences abound for the information we just heard. Implications rest with us that we ought to act upon because we heard the word of the Lord and we said we won't take his name in vain. That's what this is, a sermon. Let me show you how that's true from the book of Acts real quickly as we jump over Acts 13. I just want you to see how this is the case. And it's a great one for me and self-serving way of Acts chapter 13 and you'll see why in just a moment. Acts 13, this is kind of uh, justification for um, my constitution as a presenter or deliverer in the Word, is uh, here in chapter 13, verse 15. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. And what I appreciate there, again, is what happens. Verse 16, so Paul stood up, and check it out, motioning with his hand. Okay, so I appreciate that about Paul, that sense of we need to do some of this from time to time. And we're in good company because what he did for the ongoing remainder of the text is indeed, if there is brothers at any time among you a word of exhortation, then do it. He stood up, motioned with his hands, and he began to preach. So it's an idiomatic expression, what he says here, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. It's an expression of bear with my sermon to you. I am preaching to you. I am letting you hear from the word of the Lord. It's not my opinions. That's why our pulpit ministry here seeks to honor that example. It's not about opinions, not about politics. It's about the text. And that is, please, Redeemer, bear with my word 
of exhortation as we see from the text of Scripture. And he sets for us a beautiful example of what preaching is supposed to be about God in Christ through the Word. And that's what he does. So he says, bear with my word of exhortation. What is his word of exhortation about? Turn to chapter 5 and you'll see it real quickly. What are we about to explore in his word of exhortation? Chapter 5, look there with what it is about. What is his concern? Why is he exhorting them? You realize to exhort is to kind of push forward, to push along, say, come on, guys, let's get there. Let's do this together. Come on, I'm exhorting you. Hear from me the word of the Lord. Join with me. And here is the heart of his exhortation, verse 11 of chapter 5. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. You're dull. You're not listening anymore. You're taking the word, the name of the Lord in vain. You sit and you're dull. You have need of an exhortation. So does he scream and shout and berate them like we see on the internet? You know, and you're, not, you're, you're the worst church member I've ever had. I don't know if you saw that or not. Anyway, is that the heart that's reflected in the text? No, he does exhort. You're dull at hearing. You ought be more mature since you've already endured immaturity, and yet somehow you're being come more dull. And what does he write to them? A big, massive theological treatise? No. It's actually driven with pastoral concern. You have need of endurance. I'm worried about you. You're becoming dull in hearing, and that concerns me. Almost an accident right outside the door. You have need of endurance, so look at how he exhorts them with such force. Look right there in the text and you'll be overwhelmed. Flap over one page and look at the earnestness of his concern for their spiritual apathy. Verse 7 of chapter 3, I'm in chapter 3, and I just want to point out to you a, a huge obvious concern for him is about their apathy. How urgent of a concern does he think their apathy spiritually is? How they're like coming to house church, they're assuming the data that's being taught, and they're like, whatever, it is what it is. I'm joyfully hearing and singing a couple songs and going home. Look at his urgency for their spiritual lethargic spirits. Verse 7 of chapter 3, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, which day? Today, if you hear his voice. Look at the urgency that he takes this text, and he develops it over and over and over again to them. Hear it today afresh. Don't wait another moment. Repent and hear, verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called what? What's the urgency? Today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Not tomorrow. Today, right now, you're hearing the word of the Lord. Don't think about it tomorrow. Think about it today, right now. Perk up. Clean out your ears, listen to the word of the Lord, and act in accordance with what you heard. Today, if you hear his voice, if you're hearing it, receive it and act on it. Not tomorrow, today. Look at how he develops it yet again in verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. 
he jumps back on it in verse 7 of chapter 4. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward and the words already quoted. Yeah, really, quoted like six times. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's concerned. I have more to say. We always do. More to say. But you're dull of hearing. I'm concerned for you. You have need of endurance. Today, right now, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart in unbelief. For those that did never made it to the land of rest. This is pastoral urgency for the congregants. Please hear the voice of the Lord. One author summarizes it this way as I thought was very uh, on point. He says, if this, to the writer, if this apathetic disposition was not decisively checked, that's what it, you know, check, you know, wake up. If it's not, if it's not decisively checked, it could only result in spiritual inertia and the erosion of their faith and their hope. It, you can't go on with dull hearing. It has to be checked. Bear with my word of exhortation. If I didn't care, I wouldn't exhort. And so he drives us to the exhortation of God and the discipline of a loving father. We've had those on earth, fathers on earth, who disciplined us also because they thought it was right. How much more so does a loving heavenly father discipline those with whom he loves in order to bring them all the way to their hope? Bear with it. Endure. Because you're kind of drifting off and I'm concerned. If you keep drifting you will lose your sense of faith and hope. Today, if you hear, act and obey. This is the word of exhortation. Uh, number three, as we come to where is the audience of Hebrews located, look in chapter 13. This is uh, the where is the audience that we would join with these individuals who are in uh, threat of drifting off course. Chapter 13, verse 24. Where do we think this audience is located? We might pair with them and receive from them this uh, wonderful word from the Lord. Verse 24 indicates where these uh, individuals are located, these house churches. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Again, speaking to that kind of bad relationship that's developing between their leadership and uh, those in the churches, and all the saints, those who, and here's your kind of, your, your key that unlocks the door to the location, is a little bit here where it says, those who come from Italy send you greetings. I would indicate to you, as it did to me, I'm sure we're on the exact same page with what that just indicated. They're located somewhere in Italy, right? So those who came from your hometown send you greetings. I meet somebody, let's see, no, somebody meets me, and they come from Grand Blank, Michigan, and they say to me, those from Grand Blank, Michigan, send you greetings. 
It's an indication I'm probably somewhere from Grand Blanc, Michigan. Someone there at Grand Blanc, Michigan knows who I am, and they send me greetings. It's great. So that's the idea here. Those who come from Italy greet you, send their greetings to you. So we would say from that, they're in Italy at least, and it's a real good chance not only in Italy, but they're located in Rome. Turn to Acts chapter 2 as this opens up to us that they are most likely in Rome. Acts chapter 18, sorry if I said 2, 18 verse 2. This is giving us insight into the audience that we will be journeying with and pairing with and getting into the mind of the author uh, who wrote to them this magisterial letter or really this sermon. So uh, why are they in, uh, not in uh, Italy anymore? Those who are sending back greetings to Italy, most likely Rome. Well, if you're in chapter 18, look at verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius. Recently, look at this, he came from Rome with his wife Priscilla. Now, we just read that those from Italy send you greetings. Here we find a man coming from Rome. That is Italy. Because why did he flee from Italy? Or from Rome. Why? Because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Okay, so this places us somewhere in the Edict of Claudius where he banished all of the believers from Rome. Why? Why would he do that? And it took place in AD 49. Claudius said, All right, all of you rabble rousers who name the name of Jesus, you're out of here leave, because you're causing raucous quarrels in the Jewish districts by your gospel announcements. So, it's easier on me, it's easier on them, if all of you take your ball and go home. So, out. Edict of 49, that's what's most likely taking place in chapter 10, where they're saying, he writes to them, this group who had already gone through that, he says, you remember in the former days when you suffered? Do you remember? What is he referring to? Most likely A.D. 49 where Claudius kicked everybody out. And there was a seizure of property, public ridicule and abuse. Those some were even imprisoned during that time. You remember those former days? Yet you endured. Let that past experience Strengthen the present and your future hope. God brings difficulty in our lives, yet by His grace we endure and overcome. And when the sun comes back out, more difficult days do come. And where do we find our strength? By recalling His faithfulness before He will so surely do it yet again. Aquila and Priscilla then left during that time, most likely, of what we just read in Acts chapter 18, they left when Claudius banished everybody out, and there's some there who then remained. But Aquila and Priscilla send their greetings back to those who are still there in Rome. That's who the audience or where the audience is located, an urban church environment, small house churches located somewhere in the city of Rome. What does this tell us about the body, where they're located? Well, do you realize somewhere in the date of this letter, it's probably between 64 and 67 AD. And I know you're going to remember that. Write it on your refrigerator and meditate on it, right? But what I'm saying is this. That's the great, remember, pastoral reference to transition into why that matters. 
But somewhere between 64 and 67 AD is when the book is written. What does that tell us about the group? Well, Acts 18, AD 49, they're banished, right, from Rome. Banished, out, everybody. And then in chapter 10, it describes how bad it was. It was really, really bad. Yet, if this book is somewhere in 64 to 67 AD, guess what's coming around the pike? Just getting started in their lives. Round two. Neuronic Persian uh, persecution. Nero. Round two. And this one is a bloodbath. And they're thinking, be faithful. I could. I could. And seek protection. Return to the old covenant. I could. And he is exhorting them. Remember when difficult days came before. You endured. And when you think you can't, I cannot. This leads us to our final conclusion. The how. Who, what, where, when, why. I skipped and I'm at the how. How? By looking to Jesus. You right now, we know that you're facing hardship. We know that. You know I am. Because we belong to another age. And this age is passing away. We don't belong here. We're new creation creatures. In an age that is passing away, we will not have our points of thriving extravagance when we don't belong to the age that is passing away. We're going to face hardship. So if that's true, how will we endure? He says in chapter 3, consider Jesus. the apostle and high priest of our faith. He tells you in chapter 12, how will I make it? By looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy that was set before him, don't lose sight of your joy that is set before you, he endured the cross. So too to you, you have need of endurance. How will I endure? By looking to Jesus, my Savior, Redeemer, and my High Priest. Who, since He was tempted, is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You'll help us in the next several weeks as we journey through Your Word that You've recorded for us. 